MSW Media. Big shout out today to Helix Sleep. Take their two-minute sleep quiz and they'll match you to a mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. Find your perfect mattress and up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows at helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Wednesday, January 4th, 2023. Today, the House adjourns after three Kevin McCarthy speaker defeats as the vote goes past the first ballot for the first time in 100 years. George Santos is being prosecuted for fraud in Brazil. The Proud Boys seditious conspiracy trial is underway. And Buffalo Bill's DeMar Hamlin is in critical condition after suffering cardiac arrest on the field. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Dana Goldberg. Hi, Dana. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, three <laughs> adjourning is the worst thing they could have done. I mean, oh, it, it, it's going to be it's going to be a mess. When when the uh, clerk called for adjournment, somebody in the back was like, no, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> God damn. Three ballots and uh, 19 votes went to Jim Jordan and others on the first one. 19 votes went to Jim Jordan and others on the second one. 20 votes went to, to Jim Jordan uh, on the third ballot. This is the first time in 100 years. It was in 1923. That time it took nine ballots to get a speaker. Wow. The record, I can't remember what year it was, but it took 133 ballots and it lasted two months. So, Oh, my God. I don't know where we're going to end up on, on, on that scale this time. We'll see, but the rules call for them to continue voting until a speaker is chosen. And until then, nobody can get sworn in. So everyone's just sort of on the hill with their kids and their family, like waiting. But this, to me, this was a fantastic day. I mean, a sad day for the Republic that that something that this has happened to one of our major parties. For uh, sure. But um, just this does not bode well for House Republicans. I mean, this is what you get for being just a horrible douchebag who tried to overthrow and help overthrow the government, who was Trump's lackey, who's just not a good guy in general and just a shitty politician. It's shocking that he would even uh, put himself in this position without knowing how many votes he had. Yeah. And had he stuck to his guns, you know, on January 7th, where he was wearing a mask on the floor and saying Donald Trump is responsible for all this instead of going down and kissing his butt at Mar-a-Lago and, you know, whatever he had, whatever Donald had in his safe to show McCarthy, like, I'll put this public if you don't support me. Apparently, uh, and this is just coming out now, um, breaking news from Garrett Hake, Trump, he will not say whether or not he still supports Kevin McCarthy for speaker. And Maggie Haberman is reporting that Trump actually made calls to try to whip votes for McCarthy and <laughs> failed. <laughs> More people voted against him. So it's going to be interesting to see how this unfolds over the next uh, days, weeks, months. Who knows how long this is going to take? I mean, Stormy Daniels has a better chance of whipping votes because <laughs> she's just better at whipping in general than with Donald rolled Trump. Up magazine, yeah. With the rolled up magazine. They should have sent her in. Yeah. And um, uh, real quick before we get to the hot notes, there's some very sad news. Oh. Uh, both actor Jeremy Renner and Buffalo Bills player Damar Hamlin have both suffered traumatic Blunt force chest injuries that caused 
uh, heart failure. Uh, yeah, uh, cardiac arrest cardiac is what they're arrest. saying with Demar. And um, the hit, if you saw it yesterday, it's it's interesting because it wasn't. I would say a harder hit than I've seen from some others in the past. But he stood up. And then just went down. He just fell backwards. It was horrifying. It was a horrifying play uh, in the aftermath. But I mean, I'm not any medical professional, but it it, it genuinely feels like the hit shocked his heart. Like it hit him well, right in the chest. That's what happened in in the in the rhythm of the heartbeat. There's that third little wave, the T yep. wave. And if you get some sort of hit to the chest during the upswing on that T wave, it's a milliseconds we're talking. Mm-hmm. Right in that area, right in that uh, upwave of that last little boop boop on your single heartbeat, that's what can happen. It can it can you know send you into AFib, arrhythmia, cardiac arrest, uh, and and um, then and I believe with both uh, Jeremy Renner and Hamill, they they put you to sleep, they intubate you, which is you know the fact that they got his heart going again is great, and then they cool down your body temperature, they go hypothermic with you and then hypothermia and then they can bring you back but the vitals are good they are in critical condition um but it's just absolutely tragic they canceled the game after an hour the commentators the humanity from the commentators Mm -hmm. were was beautiful and just every every yeah both teams both coaches um it, it just it's just yeah it, it was it was a horrible moment uh, seen by millions across the country and probably around the world because I know a lot of people overseas watch the NFL as well. Yeah. So, uh, you know, prayers, flowers, you know, positive thoughts or donate a dollar or two to to his Toys for Tots drive, which started the day at six thousand dollars and is now over three million. It is uh, one small, I think, a small gesture you can make uh, to show your support for Hamlin. So. Anyway, just absolutely tragic, and uh, we we wish Hamlin and Renner and their families, the teammates, everybody the best, absolutely the best, and uh, thoughts for today. So thank you for that, AG. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, I mean, this isn't a sports podcast or anything, but this is serious, and it's there. I think there there are going to be discussions now to to talk about uh, how how we move forward to prevent these kinds of things from happening. Uh, and Dana, a little bit later in the show, I'm going to have a long form thirty minute interview. With Ari Melber, he has penned the foreword to HarperCollins' book, you know, of the January 6th report. And um, he has a lot to say. I have a lot of questions for him. And uh, we're going to get to that interview later in the show as well. So let's um, get to some news. Then we'll do that. Then we'll do the good news. Sound awesome? Sounds good to me. All right. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right, Dana, I'm going to pull a Matto. Okay. This is from the New York Times that came out on November 17th, 1964. And I'm quoting here, the United States and Brazil formerly exchanged papers today ratifying an extradition treaty signed January 13th, 1961. When the treaty goes into effect on December 17th, it will complete extradition arrangements between the U.S. and every nation in the Western Hemisphere. Secretary of State Dean Rusk and Ambassador Juracy Magalhaes exchanged the ratification papers in a brief ceremony at the State Department. Mr. Rusk called the treaty a symbol of the expanding ties of friendship between our two countries. Dana, the treaty lists 33 common crimes generally subject to extradition. It provides the person will be returned to their home country if charged with or convicted of such offenses as murder, rape, kidnapping, bigamy, arson, piracy, burglary, robbery, forgery, counterfeiting, embezzlement, larceny, perjury, and smuggling. 
Extradition will not be granted when the offense is purely military or of political nature. Brazil has been a haven. This is still back in 1964, a haven for a group of Americans wanted in the United States in connection with financial crimes. They include Lowell M. Burrell of New York, Earl Bell of Pittsburgh, Edward Gilbert of New York, and Ben Jack Cage of Dallas. All returned voluntarily to the United States except Cage, convicted of insurance fraud in Dallas. And he was convicted in Dallas and sentenced to 10 years imprisonment in 1957. Cage fled to Brazil awaiting appeal. He's since become a Brazilian citizen. So why am I reading the New York Times from 1964 about extradition treaties between the U.S. and Brazil? Oh, I know. I know. (laughs) I touched on it yesterday during the beans. Here's the full story from the Times last night, again with the New York Times. When Representative-elect George Santos takes his seat in Congress on Tuesday, which, by the way, he hasn't yet because there hasn't been a speaker elected and no one's been sworn in, (laughs) he will do so under the shadow of an active investigation by federal and local prosecutors into potential criminal activity. But an older criminal case may be more pressing. Brazilian law enforcement authorities intend to revive fraud charges against Mr. Santos and will seek his formal response. That's according to prosecutors on Monday. Fraud was on that big list of crimes that you can be extradited for. The matter, which stemmed from an incident in 2008 regarding a stolen checkbook, has been suspended for the better part of a decade because the police were unable to find him. A spokeswoman for the Rio de Janeiro prosecutor's office said that with Mr. Santos's whereabouts identified, a formal request will be made to the U.S. Justice Department to notify him of the charges, a necessary step after which the case will proceed with or without him. The next step for prosecutors in Brazil is to file a petition When the courts reopen at the end of the week, requesting that Mr. Santos respond to the charges, a judge would then share the request called a rogatory letter with a federal justice ministry in Brazil, which would share it with the U.S. Department of Justice. Neither the Justice Department nor Brazilian authorities can compel Santos to respond, but Mr. Santos must be officially notified in order for the case to proceed. A criminal conviction, even for a felony, is not on its own an act that would disqualify a member of Congress from holding office. The last time a member of Congress was removed from office for breaking the law was in 2002 when James Traficant Jr., remember him? He was removed from the House after his conviction on felony racketeering and corruption. If Mr. Santos does not present a defense in his Brazilian case, he will be tried in absentia. Lauren Boebert asked, where absentia is. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and absentia means without you having to be absent. If found guilty, he could receive up to five years in prison and a fine. It is of note, Dana, prosecutors in two recent corruption cases against congressmen have cited their decision to hold their seats rather than resign as a reason to impose harsher sentences. They are Duncan Hunter and Chris Collins. All right. Well, I would love to see that man behind bars. All right. And the seditious conspiracy trial of Proud Boys leader Henry Enrique Ontario and four members of the extremist group at the center of an alleged violent plot to stop Congress from certifying the results of the 2020 election. Well, that is underway. Opening statements have not yet begun. However, instead, jury selection has moved at glacial pace at the federal courthouse in Washington, D.C. It is not going quickly. Just weeks ago, Stuart Rhodes, the leader of a separate but similar group known as the Oath Keepers, and one of that network's division leaders, Kelly Meggs, they were both found guilty of seditious conspiracy in the very same courthouse. Selection in that case was rigorous too, though. Now, much to the Oath Keepers' defendants' opposition, a jury was eventually cobbled together before a 29-day-long trial unfolded and culminated in a mixed bag of verdicts for Rhodes and his cohorts. 
Well, the Proud Boys now on trial find themselves in a similar predicament, though their charges are more numerous. Proud Boys defendants Tario, Ethan Ordean, Joseph Biggs, Zachary Real, and Dominic Pazola, they face nine charges apiece, including seditious conspiracy, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to prevent an officer from discharging their duties, obstruction of law enforcement during a civil disorder, destruction of government property, and aiding and abetting. And in addition to that, assaulting, resisting, or impeding officers. Pozzola faces charges unique to him alone, and that's robbery of personal property of the United States. Well, the judge presiding over the Proud Boys case in the U.S. District Judge, that is Timothy Kelly, and he was appointed by Trump. Kelly has been resistant to the defendant's many requests so far to see the trial moved from its current venue. He also denied requests by the defendants to toss the indictment altogether when the Proud Boys defendants tried to throw out the case by arguing their conduct on January 6th was protected by the First Amendment. It's not. And the indictment was unfounded. Kelly brushed them off very neatly. Now, there were many ways Tario, Nordine, Rel, Pozzola, and Biggs could have exercised their First Amendment right to protest the outcome of the election on January 6th. This is what Kelly said. But the charges against them were not merely for acts of civil disobedience gone awry. The charges involved sedition, which is one of, if not the gravest offense a person can make against the authority of the federal government. And this is a continued quote. They are charged with conduct involving acts of trespass, depredation of property, interference with law enforcement, all intended to obstruct Congress's performance of its constitutional duties. No matter defendants' political motivations or any political message they wish to express, this alleged conduct is simply not protected by the First Amendment. Defendants are not, as they argue, charged with anything like burning flags, wearing black armbands, or participating in mere sit-ins or protests. Moreover, even if the charged conduct had some expressive aspect it lost whatever First Amendment protection it may have had. And that was from Kelly. Mm. Yeah. Well, all the defendants have pleaded not guilty. Not surprising, but I think this is, I think they're going to go down. I think a lot of them are going to go down for this. Yeah. And I'm, I'm surprised none of them flipped after Rhodes and Megs were convicted. 100%. Of seditious conspiracy. I thought for sure somebody would be like, flipping, I flip, flip, guilty. Yeah. You know, and be like, take me here. I get the best deal. But no, none of them have. And we have a second Oath Keepers seditious conspiracy trial as well. Three seditious conspiracy trials. And the uh, Proud Boys one is underway. All right. We will be right back with Ari Melber. It's a fascinating interview. I think you'll really enjoy it. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Everybody, it's AG. And you know I can't stop talking about how much I love my mattress from Helix Sleep. It has changed my life. Helix Sleep makes high-quality custom mattresses to help fix your sleep issues just like they fixed mine. Helix knows everyone is unique, so they have many different models to choose from, including soft, medium, and firm mattresses, and even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size folks. They have a quiz to help you find your perfect mattress. Mine was the Helix Midnight, because I wanted something with a medium-firm feel, and I sleep on my side. I love it so much. It truly has changed my life. So if you're looking for a mattress, go take the quiz, then order the one that you're matched to. The mattress will come right to your door, shipped for free. Uh, Helix is awesome, but you don't have to take my word for it. Helix was awarded number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. They even have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights, risk-free. They will pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Just go to helixsleep.com slash dailybeans, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. 
And right now, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. That's H-E-L-I-X sleep.com slash dailybeans for up to $200 off your mattress and two free pillows. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. In the indelible words of a tribe called Quest, it is time to wipe your feet really good on the rhythm rug because joining me now is the author of the foreword of the HarperCollins publication of the January 6th report, and host of The Beat on MSNBC. Please welcome Ari Melber. Ari, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Shout out to Tribe, uh, Beats, Rhymes, and Life. <laughs> I thought you would appreciate that, my friend. So Ari, you've written the foreword to the January 6th report. I've read it, and I encourage everyone who's listening to order their copy. I'll drop a link in the show notes. And the first thing that stood out to me, that came to my mind that you wrote about, also was spoken by my friend, Officer Harry Dunn, during the first hearing of the January 6th Select Committee, he said, if a hitman is hired and he kills somebody, the hitman goes to jail. But not only does the hitman go to jail, the person who hired them does. Can you talk to me a little bit about the importance of accountability here and the role that you think the Select Committee played to that end? I think now that we've seen the end of this investigation, we've seen a congressional committee that really did unfurl, unveil, and expose a lot of new evidence and information, including this voluminous set of interviews under oath that we wouldn't have otherwise had. And what it shows largely uh, is that the horrific physical violence and assault on the Capitol itself was one plank of a multi-pronged conspiracy, and that most of the indictments so far and all of the convictions are about only that plank, the physical violent assault, and not the others. And so the hitman analogy or plotters or the king versus the pawns, all of these things go to that basic point. Will there ever be any accountability for the people who planned this, summoned this, uh, cheered this, and in the case of former President Trump, praised it after the fact and vowed pardons for many of its participants. Will there be accountability there? Yeah, and I think that that accountability is is hugely important going forward because it is a deterrent for these kinds of things to happen again in the future. And, you know, you mentioned this voluminous tranche of evidence that has come out, all of the transcripts that they're releasing. And I know uh, our friend over at The Guardian, Hugo Lowell, has talked about that perhaps this was not just to get this information out to the public, which is crucially important, but also to sort of stop the 118th Congress House of Representatives led by the GOP who now wants all this documentation. It, it's sort of putting this stuff out into the public sort of prevents them from cherry picking it and, uh, you know, using it to their advantage to to continue what they have been doing, which you mention in this forward that you've written for the for the HarperCollins version, which is to continue to downplay what happened that day. And I think that what you've written really lends to the gravity of what, in, you know, historically of what we've witnessed. I know you're a lawyer and I know you, you know about these things because Chuck Rosenberg has said that he was worried about, you know, p- potentially releasing this information and it being able to help the defense in potential criminal investigations. What are your thoughts on releasing all this information to the public? Well, I think it's definitely positive and vital to advancing the understanding of the events. And I think that People can sometimes forget that there's different goals here. So, for example, although we think of Congress and its committees as often less than perfect, to, to, to put it as nicely as possible, 
Uh, when they work well, when they're actually doing their job, one of the roles of investigative committees is to develop their own set of facts based on their lawmaking powers, which is a much broader, deliberately broader process than, say, a criminal investigation, which is supposed to only find whether there are crimes and then punish past crimes. That's literally it. And because of the, the powers that prosecutors have, it's deliberately supposed to be that strict and a high bar for it. Congress is much broader. For example, people say, well, what's good? What good has come out of all this? I mean, late in the December final sessions, they passed reforms to federal law on aspects of certification and how that works, which kind of tried to coup-proof or trump-proof some of the plots. I don't think they handle all of them, but they handle some, which is more than none. And that comes out of the fact that the investigation discovered how many different tricks employed the lawyers were trying to pull. So that's totally separate from them saying whether those things should be charged, right? We have a process for that. That's more saying, oh, wow, even a bad faith kind of bullshit interpretation of this rule could allow for some at least momentary confusion or worse. We're passing a law and they got a bunch of Republican senators on board. You know, I always tell people you got to move with the facts on each item. So you might really think Mitch McConnell's bad for a hundred reasons. But interestingly, Mitch McConnell signed on to that reform. One of the rare times you see that kind of alliance. Why? Well, he has his reasons, but one might be that he actually doesn't think having people like Donald Trump able to do that is good, even if it's from a different reason than somebody else. (laughs) So that's in reference to your question, why the legislative function here matters as its own goal. And so they're putting out that material for those reasons, which might be totally separate from the fair point Rosenberg or others make, which is, gosh, how will this affect an individual prosecution? Same with privacy issues. I mean, you have a, a voluminous transcript. Sometimes it is more fair to redact things that don't relate to the subject at hand, because you put someone under oath, they're supposed to answer honestly. But when they said, oh, well, why Why do you remember? Why are you so sure you got the phone call on a Tuesday? Oh, I, because that Tuesday I was picking up my daughter from, from the hospital. And it's not germane to the investigation. It's nobody's business why the daughter was in the hospital. So you might redact that, right? So there are many reasons why, good reasons why you say, oh, some of this shouldn't all be public. But in the main, I think the committee has put out not only the report, which as you mentioned, I did the introduction for the HarperCollins edition, but also all the other transcripts so people can look at it. And that brings me to another point I'm sure we can get into, which is it's the transcripts that help prove the DOJ fell behind the committee in its investigation, which is a, raises real questions about the DOJ's approach to this thus far. Yeah. And, you know, I want to talk a little bit more about the, the goals of the committee. We, we know that to several federal judges, all of the federal judges who were presented with the question of the legitimacy of the committee voted or determined that the committee had a legitimate purpose. And we saw that in the Electoral Count Act reform, which I know Donald was trying to use as a defense, saying, look, it's totally vague. They had to reform it in order for anyone to understand. I was like, he's going to use that as a defense. It's a losing defense, I think, but a defense nonetheless, because he really doesn't have another one. And I want to drill down a little bit more uh, on the goals here. And then I want to come back to what you said about Department of Justice falling behind uh, the committee on these things. But we know the purpose of the committee was to investigate the coup, present their findings, make recommendations. I also like to think that the hearings, uh, and I attended four of the, of the hearings, I think they prepared Americans, uh, the American electorate, for possible criminal charges. 
you know, to to be like, hey, they presented this as Trump as the center and the leader and the ringleader of this coup. And if he is charged, and you know, everyone should be prepared for that eventuality. We're going to make criminal referrals to that end. What do you think about those kind of other sort of less tangible goals of the committee? Do you think that they achieved their goal of showing not obviously a certain percentage of, of super diehard MAGA people, but do you think they got more Americans on board with the fact that Trump committed huge, heinous historical crimes? You know, it's, that's a tough question to answer precisely because I don't, I don't know how much we can draw about what people took from the hearings. I think a careful way to say it is many, many people heard pieces of the hearings directly, that's direct evidence, coverage of the hearings, and some of the implications. And so, you know, we work in the news here, cover this stuff. I mean, most hearings, even big, important hearings, don't get covered at all. Uh, it wasn't obvious up front that the way the hearings ran would maintain the interest. You might go in live coverage of one. And then not take the next. That happens to candidates, just to pick a, a simple example. You, you cut in to pick up a speech. And if they're giving the exact same stump speech they always give, sometimes you, the news cuts away. So it wasn't obvious that it was going to reach this many people. I think tens of millions of people are more familiar with the material. And I think for the facts, that's good. Whether that explains or normalizes expectations around political accountability and charging people in office. I, I just don't know, to be really honest with you. I think there's something in the American psyche and culture that over identifies the president with the nation, uh, which is generally from a political science perspective, a unhealthy or concerning thing. It's what we think of as overly nationalist, right? Or this, the, the state is me, right? It would be the, the negative French example. <laughs> but I think there is that because I don't think the citizens of Illinois are aghast at the idea that more than one governor went to prison. I think the mood there is, and that's a nonpartisan point, some of those governors were Democratic like Blagojevich. I think the, the citizens there say, well, if they were a crook, then they should go to prison. Right. And yet when you turn to a president, even one who we know is as completely reviled as Donald Trump is, he's one of the uh, least popular people to be in the White House ever since we've taken count. That's a fact. That's separate from all oh, liberals don't like him or whatever. He's triggering. No, that's just a fact. So even Trump, though, we see people feel this sentimental or nationalistic concern. And so I say that by way of saying that I'm not sure that the hearings, while effective, move the needle on that. Or maybe I'm just not the right expert on that level of public analysis mindset. But I do think the hearings were incredibly powerful at showing people who might otherwise have been less inclined to follow every little detail or development that this was a big deal. And then point two, and this is what my forward on the coup conspiracy really emphasizes, that this was much more than one day that got out of control. And by the way, if something gets out of control randomly and somebody dies, that's a terrible thing, right? We that might be called third or second degree murder. It's not first degree murder if it wasn't planned, but that could be terrible. But it's fundamentally different for the nation to understand what we do about it if it wasn't only that terrible thing, but actually was this premeditated multi-month conspiracy. And that's where I think the committee's work, and I write about this, really expanded the understanding. We live in a culture now where people love to be like, didn't we already know that? I think I knew that. I think I read that before. Is that new? Yeah, this was new. 
because on January 7th, people woke up and said, what, what the hell? And wow. And then people fought over the day without even realizing that that was just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. And, and I think something else that uh, really stood out to me in your, in your forward in, again, the HarperCollins version of the, of the 1-6 report was this multi-pronged idea, this multi-pronged approach, because you've talked about the DOJ, and I still want to get to that uh, a little bit because I have some questions there. We've talked about the courts, you know, and the legitimacy of the committee. We've talked about how the American people view it. I remember one of your colleagues, Rachel Maddow, we all know Maddow, host of the podcast Ultra, she said accountability can't be left to the criminal justice system alone. We need voters in the courts and the parties. But to do that, we have to recognize when fascism is afoot. And so you say in your forward, you say, quote, before Americans consider questions about prosecuting or jailing a former leader, there's a lower bar of assessing whether that leader is an authoritarian willing to rule by coup and violence. Talk to me a little bit more about I know that that's one of the goals of the committee, and I think that they went a long way to that. But as you say, it's hard to assess. Talk a little bit more about how we do that, how we kind of at least the majority of us get on that same page. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting you draw those connections. I mean, yeah, I was thinking about that a lot in terms of if you establish that a person, in this case, obviously, we're talking about Donald Trump, but that a person would rule that, then that's the first question of would you restore them to power? I, again, to go to Bogoyevich, he was literally trying to buy and sell government perks and positions which are not his to sell. That's why it's called corruption. So once you establish that, even if you agreed with him on a few things, let's say he was a super liberal Democrat, so he was like, oh, he's more liberal than the other candidate that I, I like less. Right, but he's trying to auction off a sentence. So you see why that's that's worse than even what you agree on, right? Those are baseline things. I think we we lose them at our peril. So I I think for one, the record alone helping people understand that and this sort of public process was like Rusty Bowers testified, said how terrible it was, then was asked something about would you ever vote for Trump? And he's like, well, I hope he's not the nominee. And they were like, what if he was? And he was like, well, maybe I go, maybe I would, because he's that after everything he said, he went back to that. Then he cleaned that up and walked that statement back again. Now, I think it it's a low bar and a sad thing that that's what it takes for some of these people. But that's also part of our civic process, whether we like it or not. And it's it's a process that is so tedious that money people drop out of it, which I get. <laughs> it's like go back to go do something else with your time. But that tedious process moved Mr. Bowers. You move a few more people and you move a couple points off Donald Trump, the Republican, to Donald Trump, the authoritarian, and he's probably not in a position to have a coalition that, that wins. That is one piece of it. Another is whether there's going to be baseline rules for democracy, which I think has been a struggle for America for a very long time. So I'm not naive or, or super optimistic about that, meaning are, is there secure voting rights for all? Do we actually care about the outcome of elections? not just from a legalistic perspective, but about having majority rule, because there's a lot of gerrymandering, a lot of other tricks. So all of those things play into this. But yes, I think there's a civic role for what we're going to set as our baseline that is distinct from who actually gets charged, which I also think is important. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And um, now I want to go back to the to the Department of Justice point that you were bringing up earlier, because I asked this question to several people. Normally, I ask this of uh, former U.S. attorneys, federal prosecutors, federal and state prosecutors, you know, like Joyce Vance, Barb McQuaid, Ellie Honig, et cetera, et cetera, you know, because I wanted to know, well, where is the DOJ on this? And one very interesting response I got back, actually, I think from a couple people, 
was to remember what happened in the Durham investigation of Sussman, which is he had his star witness, Jim Baker, that gave conflicting testimony to the inspector general, Congress and the grand jury, which made him easily impeachable as a witness. Now, of course, we could talk about the materiality of the lie in the first place. But to talk about this impeachable witness, could the reason DOJ needed to get all these transcripts is to look for consistencies in testimony to head that kind of witness impeachment off at the pass? Or, and I mean, there's not just two choices here, but there's so much public evidence of the crimes already, as Barb McQuaid has said to all of us, that even without this underlying evidence, there's at least 18 U.S. Code 371 and 1512 C2 for Donald Trump. So what do you think about that argument that the DOJ kind of had to wait for this committee to be finished to move forward on indictments in the first place? I don't think historically they wait on Congress. And historically, in heavy prosecutions, you don't wait on anything. I mean, that's why you have arrests, right? You, when people see somebody caught, they're arrested on the spot. There's still a legal process to prove the underlying reason. Uh, but you just arrest them. It's only in the slower process where you say, oh, they served an arrest warrant, they show up, they, you know. And so likewise, if something's big enough, they have to go move. I mean, for one thing, they can't wait on a political branch because for any number of reasons, the political branch might not finish its work. Or in the 50-50 Senate, someone could pass away and the gavel could change and it might you might never see the transcripts. In other words, anything they're doing that's on an emergency or high priority basis can't wait on that. So I don't, I understand what people are saying. I don't think that there's no validity to some level of interplay because we know they've been exchanging letters and they exchange materials. There's interbranch cooperation, you know, and of course that the House has a constitutional role doing oversight of the DOJ. They're not supposed to tell them you know, what to do in certain individual circumstances, but they oversee, they fund, blah, blah, blah. So having said all that, I think that this DOJ has taken, as I wrote in the piece, initially at least, approach where they prioritized physical violence and not the planning. And we don't know when they realized how intricate the planning really was. I think the committee probably opened their eyes to some of that. And then I think they still are holding back from any indictments of the lawyers and elites who helped plan this, which raises questions of why that is. Is that because of bias? Is that because of some level of kinship, uh, lawyers club, the elite club? Is it because of what we might call out of court concerns? Like, well, if you start really going and indicting the heavy hitters from an administration, do you risk setting up a cycle where then they do that to you? That is an unacceptable, wrong calculation, but it's a calculation that could come up. You could imagine it coming up. So I really think that's what's most striking here. We're talking here starting the new year with January with the new house coming in. And I think that's the biggest question that hangs over the DOJ. And if there's an action in some sense on any of those elites, as I call them in the coming, say, couple months, then it suggests they didn't, they're not doing it, right? I mean, there's only so long that anyone can say, oh, well, maybe that's their next move just, just around the corner. Yeah. And the committee kind of did that too in my opinion, by not referring some of their fellow colleagues and members of Congress for criminal referrals to because they didn't want that to happen to them, which, by the way, it will, uh, regardless of whether they do or not. Uh, I don't think that anything like that is going to prevent the Republicans in the House from, you know, taking retaliatory steps against against their uh, their colleagues and former colleagues. 
But one thing you mentioned, that is why I had wanted back in 2021, a special counsel to be looking into the leaders of the coup. And one of the main reasons was because with just the Department of Justice, they don't have to tell you who they've declined to prosecute and why they've declined to prosecute them. But a special counsel by regulation, I think the regs written by Neil Katyal, who I saw on, on your program recently, say that you have to give us your reasons for declining exactly. a prosecution. And I was like, that is is what we need, because if they don't go forward with these indictments, there's going to be some heavy explaining to the American people why exactly why and how Donald Trump is above the law and and not just him, but all of his, his colleagues in suits that were, you know, Jeffrey Clark, John Eastman, everybody up there at the top, especially with the fraudulent elector scheme, which to be fair, DOJ has been looking into since I think like January, at least having gotten warrants to get the emails from Eastman and Clark and confiscate their phones and looking into Rep. Scott Perry. But, you know, I think I think that that's also something to consider with this special counsel. What are your thoughts on on the appointment of special counsel by Merrick Garland? Well, I thought that the appointment itself was unusual legally, which doesn't mean it's good or bad, but it is notable that typically you appoint a special counsel because the people that are under investigation are same team or perceived as such, not opposite team. So Rosenstein appointed Mueller to look at team Trump because Rosenstein was hired by Trump. And so that was the reason, right? You can understand that. Bill Clinton famously pushed into dealing with what was under a different law an independent counsel, but before that was triggered, you still had Janet Reno and others saying, yeah, we need arm's length review because we don't want to have the conflict of investigating what is basically your boss, right? Yeah. This is kind of the opposite. This is saying, well... Investigating your boss's opponent. Yeah, your right. opponent, and and you can understand a little bit of the logic of, well, we don't want to look like we're being too hard or political, so that's why, but again, uh, that is not the traditional definition of a conflict. I do think that if you were going to do it, the time to do it would have been immediately when you came into office because it's not that Biden's running. I mean, what, what Garland said in public was, oh, well, Trump's running now. Biden's expected to run. So we got a lot, another layer of independence. You know, uh, I don't buy it, as you can hear. I'm not, again, when I, I want to be very precise. I'm not saying it's legally invalid. It is a acceptable use of his authority, right? But do I think that it is a cogent, well-executed use of special counsel? No. I think if you did it on day one of being AG, it might make more sense because you say, we're going to start this fresh, and then you'll all be able to see whether I change anything as we go, by which I mean overrule the special counsel, right? Because there is, a, as you mentioned as well, a mechanism that requires that. But instead, it's like, well, no, you had all this time where there wasn't a special counsel, which means Garland really was running it with the same reasoning and issues. Now, all of a sudden, there's this new layer, but he's got to get started. He's got to go. I know everyone likes to say, oh, it's, it's they're, they're on. It's going to be fast. Well, if you've ever been to any office in your life, start with setting up the printers and meeting everyone and go from there. There's a certain amount of time here that's going to be taken. And then third and finally, and this is the most legal point I could make. All the big calls will still be made by Attorney General Garland. It is true in fairness to him that this creates a trail so that if the if Smith comes back and says, there's four ways we could prosecute Trump, uh, we should do all four, 
supersized and Garland says, no, do one out of four or zero or vice versa. All of that will be established. And so that creates some sort of legalistic trail for people to say, oh, it didn't originate with Merrick Garland and Biden having lunch and coming up with this. Here's the actual evidence that it came up the line. And here's what happened. Having said that, this is where I'm going. There are other legal mechanisms if you want complete autonomy, which is to say, if you actually want a special counsel to be independent and make the call independently, you can deputize them with the full authorities of attorney general. Uh, I think some people know about this, some people don't, but they, there's a, it's, it's happened. That's what they did with yeah, Patrick Yeah, happened Fitzgerald. recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Patrick Fitzgerald was a Republican-appointed uh, special counsel dealing with what was then that leak investigation regarding Dick Cheney back when the Cheneys, you know, had a very different orbit, right? Now you got Liz Cheney on this committee, but, and the, the concern was, obviously, something that's going that high in the White House could, it could land anywhere. The entire charging authority was given to the special counsel. The then Republican Attorney General did not have the authority to overrule. That's what it looks like if you're super independent. Now, that might have been a case where the AG was pretty sure it wasn't going to hit a president or former president. So they didn't quite feel that same tension, but it could have hit a vice president. It could have hit someone really big. They don't know. That's how you do it. Garland didn't do that. And that's why, again, I say this respectfully. It's, it's, he's not out of bounds. He's not out of order. But he claimed he wanted this independence, but then didn't actually use the full authority of independence that exists. And that, I think, is something that hangs over all of it. Yeah, I, I agree. It does. I know Chuck Rosenberg brought that up with uh, me and Andy McCabe on on a yep. podcast about the special counsel that we do. We talked about the Fitzgerald investigation and, um, you know, why didn't he do it this way? Although, you know, Merrick Garland has said he will take whatever recommendations Jack Smith brings to the table. But will he? Well, bonus, we'll, we will know because he, he has to report that. We will know. But when again, if, uh, this is just a lawyer in me. It's like, if you 100% will, then why wouldn't you give him the authority? Because that would actually add credibility. It's like you will, but you're maintaining the power. And as everyone, again, it's not that different than any other job you have. If you have a job where the boss is like, no, no, you do it. I'm going to sign off on it, but they maintain the power. That does affect, right, how you build the budget when you know that in the end of the day, they still are going to do it. It's very different than if you got the card with an unlimited top and the boss was in another country and you're like, no, no, we can really run this card however we want. Those are different feelings. You don't need to be a lawyer to know that. Yeah, no, who knows? Maybe it's got something to do with budget. Maybe maybe Garland wants the caller. I, you know, I, don't, I honestly don't know. We would all be speculating at this point. But again, fortunate for a special counsel accountability and transparency and reporting. We will eventually find out. But uh, this needs to get underway because we're looking at a year, year and a half to get a trial completed. And then we're already on top of the next presidential election. Yeah. So, yeah, well, I think, you know, Ari, you've truly captured the gravity uh, of this time in history. Reading that uh, intro, I, I devoured it. I highly recommend everybody get it. Again, it's the HarperCollins January 6th report. We're going to have a link to it in the show notes so you can grab a copy. I encourage everyone to get one and watch The Beat with Ari Melber. Follow Ari on social media. Ari, it's been really, really great talking to you today. Thanks for writing this forward. I think it's a big piece of history. I appreciate your time today. Thank you, Allison. Thanks for what you're doing, your nice words, and uh, everybody staying engaged. I think that's important. All right, everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. 
Hey, it's Kimberly, host of the Start Me Up podcast. If you like your politics with some loose talk and salty language, you're going to love my show. I interview the coolest people like Mary Trump, Kathy Griffin, and DNC chair Jamie Harrison. The Start Me Up podcast has an easygoing, casual style and a strong emphasis on left-leaning politics. We also have frank discussions about sex and more than a few spirited rants. Just visit patreon.com slash startmeup or wherever you get your podcasts and start listening today. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Who likes good news, everyone? Then good news, everyone. Good news, good news. And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, pet photos, especially if they're in costume, uh, interesting Santa letters, uh, if you want to give a shout out to somebody that you love, a shout out to a small business in your area, adoptable pet in your area. If you want to talk about perfidious shit kids say or shit you say or shit your parents say, anything you want to send to us, you can send it to us by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. AG, did you see the first picture? I haven't seen the first. Oh, my God. It's for both of us. This is for both of us. Okay. From CJ, pronouns she and her. AG loves chickens. DG loves babies. Say no more. <laughs> Here is our chick. Look at that perfect baby. <laughs> Look at the little mouth on the baby. That's one of those robes right out of the shower that you wrap them up in. Oh, my. Well, bath, because there's not a lot of babies that age taking showers. <laughs> do they <laughs> just stand in the shower? Do, do. Do, do, do. Does this shower chicken wrap come in my size because we sh- I, I think it's gotta it has I need, to i i need one and look at the little there's some cluckle. giraffes i know those lips the perfect little lips oh, all right oh. thank you for that i needed that what's I up know. next David? all right this is from patrick no pronouns on patrick my good news is that i realized i should send you this pic of our ultra sassy rottweiler pepper she always wants to be in the middle of everything like a good dog should on christmas we had a large bow lying around. I tied it around her head as a joke, but she gave us the biggest doggy smile I've ever seen her do. She was so proud of her pretty bow. (laughs) Oh my God, what a beautiful dog. Oh, she's adorable. She is very proud of her pretty bow. Oh, Patrick, thank you for that photo. All right, next up from Susan, pronouns she and her. In the summer of 2019, some friends collaborated to spay, neuter, and rehome members of a semi-feral colony of over 80 cats. Neighbors trapped them in batches, and we housed them before and after their appointments with destiny (laughs) at Fix Our Ferals. We gave the cats descriptive placeholder names. One imposing Tom was named Big Head. Very good. He was leery of people, but not aggressive. He got along well with other cats. Lenore and I thought he might have house cat potential. Lenore, but I don't like his name, Big Head. Me, in Spanish, it would be Cabazon. Is that any better? Lenore shrugged, but later circled back and said, what was that Spanish word again? Garbanzo? (laughs) (laughs) And so now in that mystical but familiar process, Big Head's true name was revealed to be Garbanzo. He now lives in Lenore's yard, but increasingly hangs out in her bed and welcomes scritches. He and Lenore's other former feral rascal are inseparable pals. Garbanzo is affectionately known as the Bean, naturally. Adorable. We thought you would want to know, too. Of course. Thank you so much. Here's a pic of the colony oh in my 2019. God. A mass of miserable creatures at first glance, but can now pick out several kitties we have come to know as individuals, including Garbanzo, circled. 
He prefers his new home with all the comforts. <gasps> that is a lot of dander, and I'm very allergic to this photo. <laughs> look at, look at, look at the They're bean. so cute, though. What a handsome boy. Indeed. The Scratch Lounge classic. I love it. I love it, too. All right. This is from Bear's Favorite Volunteer, pronouns she and her. Happy New Year. Thank you for all that you do. I walk dogs at the local shelter, and Bear has been there over a year. I don't get why. He's an awesome dog. He knows tons of commands. He's total love bug. He should probably be the only dog in the home, but would be amazing. I mean, an amazing companion. We are in Grass Valley, California, and he's at Sammy's Friends. If anyone's interested in, in, in this dog, it's at Sammy's Friends. Uh, it's my mission to get this boy a warm bed and loving family. And sammysfriends.org, S-A-M-M-I-E-S, sammysfriends.org. What a That's a beautiful, boy. beautiful dog. The eyes. Look at the eyes. He knows things. He does. He's gentle. Yes. What a love. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Sammy'sFriends.org. All right. Next up from, is it Rachel G or Raish Raish G? I, I don't know if this is a typo or not, but pronouns she and her. My fiance made reservations for New Year's Eve dinner and for us to celebrate our recent engagement. Congratulations. Being New Year's Eve and our combined lack of planning, the reservations were for 4 p.m. We were literally the first people to arrive for dinner that night. Shortly after we arrived, and because it was so early in the evening, three older ladies were seated next to us. Apparently, dinner at this restaurant is their New Year's Eve tradition. The tables at this restaurant couldn't have been more than six inches apart. <laughs> and my fiancé and I have never met a stranger, so it wasn't 15 minutes before we were eavesdropping and recommending the John Dory fish. Soon, the ladies started talking politics, and my ears perked, and my fiancé's eyes rolled. She knew I wouldn't be able to resist. They were discussing Nicole Wallace and other former members of the GOP and if she would return to the GOP at some point. It's not every day, three ladies in their 70s sitting next to you discussing Nicole Wallace, of all people. I had to interject. I asked them if they listened to podcasts. They did, but they hadn't listened to Mueller, she wrote. One of them said, I've seen the tweets from Mueller, she wrote. I said, yep, same person. I hope you have three new listeners and these amazing ladies. Later at dinner, my girlfriend said, what was the podcast you recommended? Maddo, she wrote. <laughs> well, <laughs> I died. We're still working on her, but she knows part of the name of two powerful female voices. Pet tax below. Won't be hard to figure this one out. <laughs> what yeah, a gorgeous, gorgeous. I can music. hear the, I can hear the husky sound. Totally. The, okay. Mama. <laughs> All right, here we go. Anonymous, pronouns he and him. Hello, I've been listening to your podcast now for four months, and I find it an absolute must-have for the start of my workday. News with swearing fucking rules, Fuck yeah. but I'm writing because I have a confession. I voted for Trump in 2016. I did it because I was angry. It seemed like the two parties were each trying to force a candidate down my throat I didn't want. I was that voter that Michael Moore warned about who got pissed and wanted to blow up the whole goddamn system. While I never became a diehard Trumper like my aging parents, I was like, okay, let's just see where this goes. And then Charlottesville happened. Then the first impeachment, the awful response to COVID, the endless conspiracy theories. It was the longest four years of regret I can remember. I'm glad to say I voted against him and his party in 2018, 2020, and 2022. I will continue to vote against the GOP for the foreseeable future as our country's survival depends on it. I just wish I could shake off the shame. Keep on doing what you do. You're important. And this show helps many people, including me. God bless. Well, Anonymous, I'm telling you to shake off the shame. I don't think you're a loner on this one and why you did it. And the fact that 
it didn't take too much for you to go, oh, fuck, is huge. And you didn't vote for him again. So I'm only one voice, but I don't think you need to feel shameful about this anymore. We all evolve and we all learn. There's a lot of people listening to this podcast that I'm sure used to be Republicans and they're not anymore. And I'm not saying you changed parties, but you did change some morals and values over the last four years and remembered who you were. And that's fucking huge. So I say, let go of the shame. I concur a hundred percent as, as I've been saying, well, you've only been listening for four months, but uh, I, you know, I used to say all the time, we can't, you know, scream for people to change and then give them no room to do so. So welcome. Welcome indeed. And thank you. And then, you know, Hey, that's brave. That's a brave confession, man. And I admire you for, for recognizing it. Like Dana said, it's there's, there were so many people who did it and then dug their heels in so that they couldn't be wrong, you know? Right. And you're not one of those people. That's awesome. Yep. So thanks for writing in anonymous. I appreciate you. And I appreciate your votes in 2018, 2020 and 2022. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. You've already and, well made up for it. <laughs> absolutely. And, um, you know, that's, that's the important part. If so he had one you. by one vote, maybe AG and I would be having a very different conversation right, right. now. Right. But he right. didn't. <laughs> no. Yes. Very, very true. All right. Thanks everybody for sending in your good news, confessions, corrections, anything you want to send to us at all, please do so by going to dailybeanspod.com. Dana, do you have any final thoughts before we get into day two? Uh, by the way, at noon today, Eastern time is when we resume ballot number four so we can keep watching Kevin McCarthy lose. Any final thoughts before we I start? I just want to thank all of the Democrats and progressives in our Congress and our House of Representatives that have a sense of humor and brought popcorn to the House <laughs> floor to watch the votes. Thank Absolutely. you so much. That Ted Lou picture is... Oh, is... Ted Lou, I just love him legendary ted if you're listening i love you and um yeah it it the sense of humor is is important it's real and by the way every single vote for democrats 212 for hakeem jeffries 212 over and over standing ovation this is what democrats in array look like and i love to see it in array absolutely everybody will be back tomorrow thank you so much for listening uh and remember please take care of yourselves take care of each other take care of the planet take care of your mental health vote blue over q and take someone with you i've been ag and i've been dg and them's the beans the daily beans is written and executive produced by allison gill with additional research and reporting by dana goldberg and amy carrero sound design and editing is by desiree mcfarlane with art and web design by joel reader with moxie design studios Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media.